the desire of our hearts this morning is to bow before you as an act of worship, as an act of submission. God, you are our Father. You are our Maker. You are our King. And we are the people of your pasture and the flock under your care. Father, have mercy on us. Give us ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the needs of those that bear your name. We do not make requests of you because you are righteous, but because of your great mercy, O Lord. Listen. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, our God, do not delay, because your people bear your name. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus, for his glory and honor. Amen. Well, today, as you have come to worship God, to worship the Lord, we have gathered in this place to seek His face, to praise His name, to worship Him because He is worthy to be praised. Last week, we uh, jumped into the issue of worship primarily because we are um, in a transition time in our church. So I thought the Lord has led me to a time of, of thinking through what it means to worship. Then last week, we jumped straight into a New Testament passage that led us to uh, one of the most significant passages, texts that Jesus himself addresses on the meaning of worship. And we saw last week what it means to be true worshipers. We saw how Jesus defined what it means for people, for believers to be true worshipers. It's not location. It is to worship God in spirit and truth. And we also saw last week a distinction. What is it that Jesus distinguishes in the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament? And we said a lot of things last week. Well, today I feel like I need to do a a follow-up sermon to everything that I said last week. Last week was like a dive into deep water, made a lot of splash, and I have to now sort of get back and say not everything that happens in the New Testament is ultimately different than Old Testament worship. So today I'm going to to address a a topic, a a sermon, and a text that comes from the Old Testament. And we will see that even though Jesus taught us last week that some things change in the New Testament as we approach God in worship, there's a whole lot of other things that remain the same. Not because they don't change, but because they are the foundation. Because they are the bedrock on which everything in the New Testament builds. So today, I want us to talk about the theme of being called to worship. And Psalm 95 will be our guide. I encourage you to open Scripture to Psalm 95. Called to worship. As you turn your Scripture there, I want to remind you, as you came in today, you received in a bulletin a, a little uh, sign-up card that you can put your name and email if you're interested to receive uh, news about prayer requests in our community. And at the end of this service, we will be collecting these cards along with the guest cards. Psalm 95. Here's the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts today. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is a great God, 
the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, They shall never enter my rest. Amen. Let us pray for this word and for our hearts. Lord, as you have summoned us to worship you, we pray that you open our hearts to hear. We pray that you open our hearts to listen and receive the message that we ha- you have for us. Teach us, O oh Lord, how to worship you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. What does it mean that we are called to worship? Are we called merely to a church service? When you hear the words, let us worship, what do you think of? Are we called merely to hear a musical group sing, be the choir, or a worship band, or a quartet, or wonderful soloists? What are we called to do when we're called to worship? A major theme in the book of Psalms is this theme of calling people to worship. And there are two themes that sort of create the cradle, sort of create the framework of everything that the Psalms do when they call us to worship. Two themes. The theme of God being our creator and the theme of God being our redeemer, our savior. And the polarity between God and man is so strongly reflected in the Psalms. Oftentimes the Psalms will focus on the majesty of God, on how different God is from everything that we are. And then it focuses on on our sinfulness, on, on our creatureliness. And because of that polarity, because of that difference, the Psalms call us to worship. But man is also presented in the book of Psalms as a finite being. God is infinite. Man is finite. Man is fallen in need of redemption. God is holy. God is the same. Well, this polarity, this difference between God and man is resolved by God's act of saving us. And the book of Psalms always points us, always directs us to this response of worship as a result of God's act of saving us. And this is no different in Psalm 95. As we approach Psalm 95, we see these two themes, the theme of salvation and the the theme of 
of, of creation being a part of what this psalm is doing and calling us to worship God. If we look at this psalm just briefly, an overview, this psalm is divided in two large sections which uh, distinguish themselves by a, pair, a few pairs of contrasts. Notice for a second, there are different speakers that address the worshipers. In the first half of the psalm, uh, it's, there seems to be a, a worshiper who is a fellow worshiper, somebody who is among other worshipers, who is who calling the congregation, other worshipers, let us come to worship. But then as the psalm proceeds, somewhere halfway through the psalm, there's a change of speakers. Because notice in the second half of the psalm, it is no longer a fellow worshiper that addresses the congregation, but the one who is worshipped now speaks to the worshipers. Some contrast. Notice also in the first half of the psalm, there's confidence in what God has done for these worshipers. In the second half, there's a warning. And the psalm ends on a, on, a, on a note of unsurety. How exactly will this worship service end? Confidence and warning. And thirdly, the first half of the psalm seemed to be dealing with some external aspects. Come sing, come shout, come bow down. And then the second half of the psalm seemed to be dealing with some internals, with a heart point of all these is that there are essentials of worship. When we are called to worship, these pairs of contrast seem to be a part of the order of worship in the psalm. And today as we approach these, my prayer is that they allow us to change, to challenge the way we come before God in worship. One of the things about Psalm 95 is that we are told by historians, by church historians, that this psalm had a prominent place at the beginning of the church's life in its daily worship. A golden gay, one of the Old Testament uh, theologians, has said this psalm had the potential to shape the worship of the early church. Though, he says, though it could hardly be the case that it reached its potential today. Today, as we think about the importance of Psalm 95 and, and how it caused us to worship, my prayer is that it would have the challenge, it would have the potential for us to change the way we worship, the way we come before God. My prayer is that it would speak to us again and allow to shape our worship experience. And I'd like for us today to look at, at four challenges, four things that this psalm does for us as we think about being called to worship, what it means to be called to worship. There's a call to sing, and we know that. There's a call to sing. Then there's a call to enter into His presence. Thirdly, there's a call to submit. And finally, there's a command for the heart. Four guides. Now, they're not all the guides that Scripture gives for us. There's a whole lot of other things that Scripture will teach us about what it means to be called to worship. But these four things will guide us from this psalm, from Psalm 95 call to sing and shout for God. Look at the way the psalm begins. Come, let us sing and let us shout aloud. And verse, 20, verse 2 says, let us exalt Him with music and song. Now this is an important aspect of our worship. Worship involves shouting. It involves, involves singing. 
Worship is not just a matter of the heart. Worship involves singing. And this is a very public act. And all believers today, especially in the 21st century, say, Amen. Right? We love singing. There's, it's an important part of what we do when we worship. But one of the things that we have to realize about our singing is that it makes our praises public. You can't just sing in your heart. You can't just sing in the shower. It says, let us come and sing. There's a corporate nature. There's a corporate reality about our experience as a congregation to come and sing before the Lord. And notice, it says, come, let us sing and shout. Shout out loud. There's something powerful about this call to worship that we often miss. It calls the congregation to sing. It doesn't call the choir to sing. It doesn't, amen, yes. It doesn't even call just a praise and worship band to sing. Do I have an amen for that? It doesn't call special musicians to sing. It calls us as a congregation to sing. And to sing out loud. Now let me make a few points of application with with this very basic reality that we so much assume. It calls for loud singing from worshipers. Not just from our audiovisual equipment. You know, technology has had a great impact for our worship. Great impact. Just think of the fact that we can record worship music and listen to it in our cars, on our iPods. The fact that you can download a whole bunch of songs and throughout your week as you go to work, as you are at work, as you do your chores, you can listen to worship. It is a huge benefit. Then we have radio stations that you can turn on and as you drive, no matter where you are, you can listen to God and worship and, and, and listen to worship songs. Great effects. Great benefits but as helpful as helpful as these have been there is a sense in which there's also a warning in using technology in our worship because there's a sense in which technology in our worship can also inhibit our singing how because we put all the stake all the focus of worship on professional singers and the way we start thinking about our worship experience is put on a great worship music, a great worship CD. That is not the call the psalmist has for us. The psalmist is calling worshipers to sing. It is not calling us to listen to somebody else sing. It might be such a basic point, but it's a crucial point. There is less singing today in our churches by actual worshipers and more singing by professional teams of worshipers. And an audio system that helps us get the music loud. But that is not the point of of the call of worship that this psalm brings us. The psalmist is calling worshipers 
Yes, you and I, who don't know how to sing very well, who might not be able to qualify to record a CD in Nashville, but you and I are called to worship God with our voices and make Him loud. That's why, brothers and sisters, I think we need to be careful about how much special music we allow in our worship. The point is not about how well our musicians are able to put up a worship service together. The point is how well are our worshipers able to sing? How well are they engaging in singing and making a loud song, a loud noise to the Lord? There are Christians today who use their lack of singing skills as an excuse not to engage in singing. When did we begin assuming that Scripture is only calling professional singers to sing? The entire community of worshipers is called to sing, even to make a loud noise for the Lord. Not amplifier systems, not simply electric instruments, but our singing to be loud. Do we sing loud in worship? I'm not asking us if Haziel is turning our amplifier system loud. I'm asking, do we sing loud in worship? Am I against technology or professional singers? No, I am not. Hear me. I want to be on the record. I am not against using technology in worship. I am not against using people who are greatly gifted by God to lead others in worship. But what I am concerned is that we are satisfied to have a worship band or a choir that sounds good and sounds loud, but our congregation, if left without instruments, if left without sound system, would not be able to make loud music to the Lord. That's what I'm concerned about. One of my goals as a congregation, for our congregation, is that we would learn as worshipers, as amateur worshipers, to learn how to sing loud to God. Amen? The first call to worship, friends. The first call is a call to sing loud to the Lord. Now, worship involves enthusiasm. It involves noise. But the enthusiasm is based on God. Look at verse 1. It's based on God being a rock of our salvation. It is an enthusiasm grounded in God's story of saving us. It's not an enthusiasm based on our self-affirmation, on our desire to be wild, to be noisy, to be excited. There's something in, in, youthful, in the youthful stage of life in which we, we naturally have this inclination. We just want to be noisy. We want to be loud. But notice the base on which we're called to make be loud, to be noisy, to make a, a loud noise to the Lord is because He's the rock of our salvation. So the enthusiasm we're called to have is an enthusiasm based on when we realize that God has saved us. When that salvation is so real to us that it makes us sing out loud that we can't be quiet, we can't just sit around and do nothing. It's like, imagine with me for a moment, the loudness of fans who cannot control themselves but shout for hours and hours because their home team won. That's the call the psalmist is bringing to us. 
Come, let us sing and make loud music to the rock of our salvation. It is when we realize that God has saved us that we just cannot stop, be quiet. We cannot be still. We have to shout. We have to sing. That's the enthusiasm. Call to worship is an atmosphere of enthusiasm. It is an atmosphere of being loud, of singing loud songs. Number two, it's a call to enter His presence. Look at verse two. Come, let us come before Him. Now, the NIV just has this phrase, let us come before Him. But a more wooden translation of this, first, of this verse, of this phrase, in the Hebrew language, really says, let us meet His face. As if the worshiper, whoever's calling us to worship, is calling us to come and meet God's face. Meet Him face to face. There's an interesting dynamic here because the call to worship is a call to meet God personally, up close, face to face. It's not a worship that is distant. It's not a worship that is done barely by an observer who's watching what's happening up front. It is the call to worship, a call to enter into His presence close up, face to face. Golden Gate, whom I referred earlier, says the following about this verse. The reference to Yahweh's face underlies the reality of meeting. It is as if we actually see Yahweh, look it into Yahweh's eyes, catch a sight of His smile. Think for a moment to the command God gave the people of Israel not to make, never to make an engraved image of what He looks like. Never to paint, never to make a visual manifestation of what God might be like. That was one of the first tenets in the Ten Commandments. And yet, in the absence of engraved images, in the absence of painting faces of what God might look like, God is calling worshipers to enter into His presence and have a face-to-face -face encounter. The call to worship, dear friends, is a call to enter into God's presence, a call to engage God face-to-face, -face, a, a call to engage Him personally. See, so many times when we think of worship, when we think about coming to worship, we are so preoccupied about questions like, will I like the songs they sing? I wonder if they will sing the songs I know, or they'll, they'll keep singing those songs that we don't know. Or I wonder if the worship will flow today. I wonder who will sing the piano. Oh, I wonder who will show up to worship today because it's Memorial Weekend and so many people are traveling. What are your expectations when you come to worship? What do you expect? Do you expect people to, to sing your type of favorite music? The call to worship is a call to enter into His presence. It's a call to encounter God face to face. It's not a call to have just any type of meeting. 
It's a call to meet God personally. It's a time when God can address you, when He can smell your breath. That's the closeness. That's the visual imagery that the worshiper is calling worshipers to engage in. It's when we come so close to God that it's as if we have a face-to-face encounter. In such a worship, there is no place. There's no room for a distant worshiper, for a distant observer who's just coming to check out the worship service. Father, forgive us when we come to worship with minds that are more preoccupied about what type of music we will have than about having a close encounter with you. The call to worship is a call to make a loud noise to the Lord. Second of all, it's a call to enter into His presence face to face, to have a personal encounter with Him. Thirdly, it's a call to submission. Worship is a call to submit to God, verses 6 and 7. Look actually the way the NIV says it. This is actually a bit unique to us. It, It really says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Now this is an awkward sign. This is an awkward sign for us. If we were to take these words verbatim, uh, we are not doing them. Because we don't come down and, and actually kneel God before God. We don't. It's not in our denominations liturgical practice. There are other denominations other high church denominations that do a better job about physically kneeling before God. Now, am I suggesting that we need to change and incorporate kneeling as part of our worship? I'm not doing that right now. But if if you've never experienced kneeling before God in worship, perhaps in your own room, perhaps before you go to bed, Whatever it is in your quiet time, if you've never prayed before God and and kneeled, try it. It's a profound experience. But here's what I want us to realize. In our culture, in our day, we do not use the act of kneeling very much. So for us, if we just incorporate it in our worship experience, there's a warning that we might think of it as some sort of a magical, physical posture that if we kneel that that will guarantee the reality that the psalmist is really calling us to do. And here's the point. In ancient cultures, the act of kneeling was always an act of submission. It was an act of showing submission to somebody who is greater than you. And the assumption was, you are inferior as a worshiper, and the one you worship is, is greater than you. That's why you kneel down. That's why you bow down. That's why you prostrate. This physical act of kneeling and bowing down was literally a way to show submission to someone greater. So when the psalmist is calling us to kneel down, to bow down, it is not simply calling us to do a, a physical act as if, if we really did it, something magical happens in us and we automatically submit to God. In our culture today, kneeling just doesn't have that symbol. So what I'm calling us to do is not so much integrate kneeling as part of our experience in Sunday mornings, but what I'm calling us to do is to realize that a call to worship is a call to submission. 
whenever we are called to worship God, it's not just a call to sing. It's not just a call to enter into His presence. It is a call to show our submission to God. To worship God, brothers and sisters, means not only to sing, not merely to meet Him, but to submit to Him. Worship without submission to His Lordship or to His control is not worship of God, but worship of worship. We can worship worship, but not worship God. We can love the time of worship for the way it sounds, for the, make it makes, the way it makes us feel, but if we're really going to encounter true worship, the worship that God prescribes for us, worship is a call to show our submission to God. Now notice the reason why, why we should have this attitude of total submission. Verse 6 and verse 7. Because He's our maker. And then look at verse 7. For He's our God. We submit to God because of who He is for us. He's our maker. He's our God. But we also submit to God because of who we are for Him. Notice it says, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. The language of, of the flock under His care or the people of His pasture, this is the language of the covenant. This is the language of those who are part of God's covenant. You see, friends, not all created beings can say this about themselves. Not every human being on planet can say that we are his flock, that we are the people of his pasture. When the psalmist wrote these verses, these words, in Old Testament times, this phrase was limited only to the ethnic people of Israel. Only they could say this. But a time came when God sent his son Jesus, who was a Jew, who was part of the people of God, who was the very Son of God, to live a perfect life, a sinless life, and yet to die on the cross, and then raised from the dead so that through His death and through His resurrection, anyone who might believe in Him might be given the right to be called children of God, and thus be made part of the people of God. You see, only those who are part of the people of God can say that they are the people of his pasture, that they are his flock. Are you? Are you part of his people? There's a sense in which God loves all people. God cares for all people. But there's another sense in which only his flock, only his people receives God's special care. Are you part of it? A call to worship is a call to submit to the one who is our maker, to the one who is our God, to the one who is our shepherd. Why? Because we are the people of his pasture. That's why submission is part of worship. Now, there are several reasons why people today might submit to God for wrong reasons. One of them, one, of ver one very common reason why people submit to God for wrong motives is that they're afraid that if they don't submit to God, God might do something evil to them or something they don't want. And it's like this, this, forceful, this forceful submission. Okay, if you really tell me I have to submit, I will, because I guess if I don't, I'll get in trouble. 
That is not the language that this psalmist is using. Notice what he says. The relationship that is between the worshiper and God is a relationship of, of someone who is caring for the worshiper. We are the flock under his care. Not the flock that is terrified by his, by his act of discipline that if we don't submit, he'll, he'll knock us down. That is, not the, that is not the submission the psalmist is calling us to have. Instead, it's, it's that submission when you know that God is our maker, when you know that God is our God, that He is our redeemer, that He is our shepherd, that He cares for us. It is a natural response for us to submit to Him. When we come to worship, we come to submit to the one who cares for us. That's why, dear friends, that's why, brothers and sisters, the third way, the third calling of worship is a call to submission. And then finally, there's a command for the heart. And this is the hardest part of the psalm. We've seen a call to sing, a call to come into His presence, a call to submit. But fourthly, there's a command for the heart. This, psalm, this part of the psalm is most challenging because it, it's calling us to engage the heart. But the reason why it's so challenging is not just because it calls us to engage the heart. Here's the first reason why it's challenging. Because it's a command, not a call. It's a command. If the first three have been calls, we're called to worship, we're called to, to come together and, and praise God, this fourth aspect is a command. It's not an option. And why it's so hard is because this command is actually given by the one we worship, not by a worship leader. Friends, when we come to God and when we engage Him in worship, bringing our hearts before Him, engaging Him with our hearts is not an accessory. There's a sense in which this command to engage God with our worship is really a proof of whether or not we submit, of whether or not we are responding to the call to submit to God. And here's, here's why. why. Here's a, another reason why the psalm is a challenge for us, because it's a warning. It's a warning against worshiping God with a hardened heart. This is another clear sign I mentioned last week that in the Old Testament, worship of God was never devoid of engaging the heart. If we think that worshiping God was just with our hearts was just a, a New Testament reality, this example is another clear example that even in the Old Testament, God expected worshipers to worship Him with their hearts. But how do we examine our hearts against being hard-hardened? Well, we have to go back to the story of Exodus. And I'm not going to repeat the whole story. It's in Exodus uh, 17. Here's, here's a snapshot of what happened in Exodus 17. The people, all they did was quarrel with Moses over their lack of water. They quarreled with Moses over lack of water. And yet this episode, here's the way it concludes verse 7, seven in, in Exodus 17. It says that he called the place Massa and Meribah because they are, the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see, in their quarreling with Moses for water, they were really questioning 
all that God did for them in rescuing from Egypt and carrying them through the Red Sea. I said at the beginning of the sermon that this psalm integrates the theme of salvation and the theme of creation together. That the psalm begins with salvation, moves into creation, and then ends with salvation. And you'll say, where in these verses do you see the theme of salvation? Right here in Exodus 17. Why is it that they quarrel? Why did God have a problem with their quarreling, with their request for water? Because they have forgotten that God had saved them. It's like they have completely forgotten that God had just rescued them from Egypt, from slavery. It's as if they have forgotten the miraculous deeds God has made in carrying them through the Red Sea. And then verse, verse in, in Exodus, one of the questions they have to Moses is, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? You see, it's as if they completely forgot about God's acts of salvation. And this is what's striking about a hardened heart. It's a refusal to connect the dots in our lives to God's savings acts. That is the essence of a hardened heart. When you have seen what God has done in your life, when you have seen God's miraculous act of bringing you out of the kingdom of darkness into His light, and yet you refuse to connect the dots when it's about living your daily life. A hardened heart does not show up in the way you worship on Sunday, but in the way you live the rest of the week. A hardened heart is not diagnosed by running an EKG on the heart, but by how you run your life in light of God saving you. What's challenging about this command is not that it deals with the inner aspects of our lives as opposed to the outer dimensions of our lives. God is not dividing our inner worship from our outer worship, he's actually connecting our inner worship with our external daily living. And every time those two are disconnected, you're running a danger of a hardened heart. Anytime you and I refuse to connect the dots between our daily living, between the way we live our daily lives, between the way we make the daily decisions, even about our, 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 our earthly provisions. When we refuse to work through our, our daily lives through the grid that God had saved us, we are in danger of worshiping God with hardened hearts. And God says, it's vain that you sing for me on Sunday, even if you might sing loud. It's vain that you come to meet with me on Sunday, even if you come and meet with me face to face. It's in vain that you even submit to me on Sunday, if all week long your habits and daily decisions do not show that you have been saved, that you have been rescued, and therefore you submit to God. Submission to God begins not with our physical posture. That's why I don't think we need to make it a mandatory experience of our Sunday morning experience. 
Submission to God begins with our hearts. Yet, how do you know if you submit to God in your heart? It is our daily decisions that prove what is really going on in the heart. And that's why God is bringing us a story of Massa and Bereba. And notice, God is saying, do not harden your heart. He's not saying, do not harden your heart as those people did at Meriba. Look at how God, what God says. Do not harden your heart as you did at Meriba, as you did at that day at Massa in the desert. And here's a point. The worshipers were not there in the desert. These worshipers that the psalmist is addressing are living hundreds of years after these events. So why is the psalmist, why are these words accusing the worshiper? By the way, at this time in the psalm, it is not the worship leader who's calling worshipers, it's God addressing. You know why? Because there is a sense in which these worshipers, even though they were not physically there, they have the same sinful inclinations as their forefathers to come before God and worship with hardened hearts. And there is a sense, brothers and sisters, that we too follow under the same category. Now, there might be someone today to say, who would say, well, hold on, we live in the New Testament times. After Jesus came, all this stuff is Old Testament. This does not apply to us. It does apply for two reasons. First of all, you and I are just as sinful as the people of Israel. We have the same sinful inclinations. But number two, and the objective reason why this applies to us and applies to the New Testament, because the same story is taken up in Hebrews chapter 4. And the author of Hebrews chapter 4 is bringing the story up to, to New Testament believers who have believed in Jesus Christ. And he's warning them the same way. And I encourage you to go home, read that chapter, and read the way that chapter ends. You see, friends, there's a sense in which the warning to come and worship God with hardened hearts is a warning just as valid for us today as it was for these worshipers, as it was for the people of Israel in the desert. So today, we talked about what it means to be called to worship. There's a call to sing. There's a call to enter His presence. There's a call to submit. And finally, there's a command for the heart. So let me ask you this. How do you know if you attended a good worship service? If you've invited a friend today, one of your inclinations at the end of the service is to ask him, so how'd you like it? How do you know if you've engaged in a good worship service? This psalmist suggests four criterias. Here are some questions to consider. Did you get to sing with other worshipers? Not if you saw others worship. Did you get to sing with other worshipers? Number two, did you have a personal close-up encounter with God? Did you show submission to God in your worship? And number four, did you hear a word from God? Some have wondered, why such an abrupt ending to this psalm? Did the service run out of time? Not quite. The psalm ends very abruptly, but it also ends very negatively. 
It tells of God's oath in his anger, they shall never enter my rest. Why such an abrupt ending? Golden Gay answers beautifully when he says, it's probably in order to put the worshiper on the spot. Because God takes worship seriously. This psalm is calling us to worship to a worship service where God has the last word, where worshipers are not called only to sing, only to enter his presence or to submit. They're called to listen a word from God to their hearts, and they're called to be challenged. Friends, brothers and sisters, one of the signs that we have come into a good worship service is not if we were able to speak with him but if he was able to speak with us. Because worship is not only a time when we address God, but a time when God addresses us. And this is my prayer for Park Hills Baptist Church, that we would learn to be a community that calls people to worship in these four ways that the psalm has taught us. Sing, come into his presence, submit, and hear from God. Let us pray. Lord, how can we ever approach you in worship on these terms presented to us in Psalm 95? Father, make these words challenge the way we think about worship. Lord, we confess that sometimes our habits or the culture around us has influenced our worship more than we allowed your word to shape the way in which we worship you. Forgive us. Purify us. Lord, let your word, which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, let it penetrate our hearts. Let this word judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And we pray that every time we call ourselves to this place to worship, we will sing for joy. We will enter into your presence. We will show our submission to you, and we will listen to your commands for our hearts. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.